episode 409. My name is Klaatu. I'm your friendly host as always. In this episode, I want to talk about Fedora Silverblue, which I've talked about before. This is, um, I guess a callback to episode 377, where I tried Fedora Silverblue for the first time. I think it was Fedora 32 back then, way back in October of 2020. And now we're in May of 2021, so it's already 34. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think that does sound right for Fedora's pace. So Silverblue, I've, I've tried it again, and this is, this is a completely random assortment of thoughts, pretty much off the top of my head. It is simply that I have checked back in with it, and um, so I decided to record some thoughts about it and some impressions. Two iterations isn't that much. It's not like I'm revisiting Fedora 30 for after, or, you know, Fedora Silverblue after, um, I don't know, five years or seven years of development. This is, like I said, first first looked at it in October, looking at it now. So this isn't, that's not a whole lot of time. So this isn't sort of a progress report. It, it is just more thoughts about Silverblue. I won't repeat any of the ones in episode 377. I invite you to go listen to that one. It is actually um, a pretty good episode. I re-listened to it this morning just so that I would I would remember what I had said about it then. And um, and yeah, it's it's it it was it was interesting to hear my thoughts at that time. And I had listened to it as I said this morning at the time of this recording and so that had been after a little while of using silverblue 34 without remembering what i had said about it so it was kind of interesting for me to compare my impressions of the past with my just hot off the press just installed it and started using it impressions and they were actually pretty similar so fedora silverblue in case you don't know it's a it's essentially containerized fedora it is or atomic fedora it is Fedora with an immutable core upon which you install containers. And those containers take different forms. So for instance, in order to install an application, you are more than likely installing that application as a flat pack, which can be said is a form of container. It, it's, it isn't exa- it's not what people think of when they say, oh, Linux and containers and Docker and things like that. But it is—it's a form of container. It, it, as you'll recall from previous episodes, we talked about NS Enter and namespaces and LXC and things like that. Flatpak leverages that kind of thing—the C groups and the NS Enter and stuff like namespaces, things like that. Um, they also may the container might take the form of a toolbox, which is a kind of dedicated, self-contained, except not really self-contained environment in which you can run Fedora on Fedora and customize it with normal Fedora tools like DNF and and whatever else, and, and then you can blow it away when you're done. You can just get rid of it, ditch it, trash it, whatever. And that is a container, very, very precisely a C-group style container built with the tool, built and maintained and, and managed with the tool called Podman, which you can find at podman.io. It is a, a container engine, so kind of like Cryo, which you can find at cri-o.io, or um, both both of which, I guess, are, are true open source alternatives to Docker, because I still can't even keep track of all the open source versus non-open source components of Docker. Uh, it's just kind of a mess. It is a lot easier, trust me, to just run Podman. I haven't really messed around with Cryo at this point, but Podman certainly makes it quite nice, quite easy. It's um, it's a great tool, so check that out if you're actually working with containers. And if you're running toolboxes within Silverblue, which, you know, after after a day or two of use, believe me, you'll you'll want to learn toolbox, then technically you are running Podman. You're, you're checking that out by running toolbox. That's what Silverblue is. I don't know that I yet know exactly why this is a thing, except still that containers are taking the computer world by storm. I don't know yet, I'm not convinced yet that that's a necessity. I just know that it is happening. And again, episode 377 for more thoughts on that. So first of all, Silverblue 34. I don't know exactly what made me think to try it. I just, I have this spare solid state drive in my main workstation, my tower, and it is but 15 gigabytes. It used to be my root partition, 
for my Slackware machine. And after a while, I just decided to upgrade, and I got like a, I don't know, a 256, or maybe it was 120 solid state, something like that. It was on sale, so it was just like, well, I might as well get the 120 gig version. And so that's my new, that, that has become my root partition. That's been a while. So I've had this 15 solid state drive just kind of sitting around, and I never know what to do with it. And I just, I just, it just occurred to me a couple of days ago, I should just throw silver blue on there, throw it in the tower, and when I feel like it, I could boot to that sometimes. Why not? So I did that. Silver blue takes up, I don't know, after install, probably about six gigabytes, maybe. Let's just say it's six gigabytes. It might not be that much. It might be don't know. Took up some some amount of room after the install. The ISO itself is two gigs, so I can imagine it taking up about six gigs after install. Rebooted, booted into Silverblue. Once again, it is the the install process is exactly like Fedora. You will you will still doubt yourself when you're installing it. You'll think, surely I have downloaded the incorrect the incorrect image, and I'm just installing Fedora by accident and didn't get Silverblue. Nope, it's silver blue. You're just it's it's that's just how it is. Some of the same mistakes are still there. I've filed official bugs now, so hopefully they'll get fixed, such as the the setup step. If you choose Dvorak for your keyboard, then when you go into setup to create your user and more, most importantly maybe your password, uh your keyboard is different. It's changed, and so you have to type very intentionally thinking, "Okay, not not my normal layout, and you have to type it out, especially on the password, which if you're typing your username and it's not coming up right, well, that's easy to fix. You'll see that right away, but if you're, pa- you're typing in a password that's all dots, if you accidentally revert to the a different layout, then you won't really be aware of it if you just zone out and revert to that different layout twice. So, and I think I did that the first time I installed. That's something to be aware of, but I have, as I said, I filed a bug about that that issue specifically, so maybe that'll get fixed. Of course, an important aspect of Silverblue, beyond all of the normal sort of, oh, this feels and seems just like Fedora, one of the most important concepts probably is the toolbox concept, because the toolbox, I I gather, is where your real work is going to get done. If you like to do things like compiling software or you're programming a bunch, you're doing a lot of stuff in a terminal, essentially. You, You really need a toolbox. Because Silverblue pretends, for better or for worse, pretends like the universe is made up only of Flatpak. And I guess, okay, so before I tackle Toolbox, I should probably tackle that topic. So Flatpak is, you know, it's one of those things where I just really, really admire what they're doing there. And yet some of the choices that they make, I just, I'm, I'm just hesitant towards. And you know, some of them I can kind of get past. The one thing that I, I keep feeling like I'll never get past is the fact that you can't just open a terminal and type in the name of a flat pack and have it launch. So for instance, if I want to start Emacs on Silverblue, I cannot just type in Emacs. I have to type in flatpack run org.gnu.emacs, all lowercase. So if I want to run, say, GIMP from a terminal, can't. I'd have to say flatpack run org.gimp.gimp all capitals gimp in the in the la- that last clause is all capitals because that's just how the the developer decided to name their their um their domain their their little official unique identifier name if I want to run glimpse then I can't just type in glimpse flatpack run uh, org.glimpse underscore editor dot I think glimpse with a capital G, lowercase L-I-M-P-S-E, and so on. You get the idea. There, There's endless variations of what the target is, and the target is quite long, and the prefix is quite long. So, I mean, at least at least if we could just type in org.gimp.gimp, you know, that, I mean, that's still longer than just gimp. But, I mean, at least we wouldn't have to worry about the flat pack run part. But, no, just cannot do that. So, that's... That's one of those things that, on one hand, I feel like I surely would never get past. And yet, I kind of feel like I get get past it eventually. Because there are 
inevitably hacks around that. There there would be scripts or, or aliases that one could create for one's most commonly used flat packs that would simply alias Emacs, or better yet, just the letter E, to flatpack run space org.gnu.emacs or whatever. I mean, I, I'm speaking as if though it's theoretical, but actually I, uh, in the end, I ended up writing a script that did exactly that. I call it packrat. You can find it at gitlab.com slash slackermedia slash packrat, P-A-K-R-A-T. And its function is to act a little bit... If you've ever used the, the application um, Alternatives on, well, on any Linux distribution, really, the, the point of Alternative is to define what your default executable is for something with potentially more than one version. So, for instance, if you're running... If you have Java installed and you have maybe Java, I don't know, 8 installed for backward compatibility for, you know, something, but you're also developing on Java 13 or 11, whatever the LTS is, then you might want to tell your computer, well, default to 13 unless I specifically launch it from the 8 directory. Um, so you can do alternative and then dash dash, I think, config, dash dash add or something like that. Or, or maybe it's alternative add, dash dash config, I don't know, whatever. Um, and you, you can tell your computer, alias the word Java to this place. And it's sort of a menu-driven, but, but also not necessarily menu-driven. It's a nice application, you should check it out. And I thought, well, that would be the perfect thing for Flatpak integration. And now that I'm saying it aloud again... I'm thinking, why didn't I just use alternatives? So maybe that's something to look out for again. But for now, what I did was I just wrote my own. Uh, that's kind of typical, isn't it? But I think there was a, there was a reason where alternatives... I, I did look at it, and, and for some reason I felt like, no, that doesn't do what I want, want it to do. I just don't exactly remember what, what the problem was. And maybe I just didn't look at it right. I'm going to have to look at that again, to be honest. But what I did was I made a... a little application called packrat and you do flatpack well let's say you do flatpack install org.gnu.emacs well now your flatpack is installed and right after that i mean you can do it anytime but i figure my workflow is that i'm going to install the thing that i happen to know i'll want to launch from a terminal and so then i'll do packrat add dash c for the command single quote flatpack space run space org.gnu.emacs close quote space emacs so I've just added an alias called Emacs that will launch, or that will that translates to Flatpak Run Org.gnu.emacs, and that's how I've been managing my Flatpaks that I do want to launch. And what is interesting, I think, is that it hasn't come up as often as I was sure it would. It really hasn't. I mean, granted, I don't spend every day all day in Fedora Silverblue, so it's it's not coming up possibly because I just you know, I know what I'm dealing with. But, yeah, it's been kind of interesting how, how I'm not actually launching that many things from the terminal in that environment. Although I do, even as I say that, I know that were I spending all day, every day in it, there would be all kinds of things that normally I wouldn't launch from a terminal, but in real life I would, because that's just, that's a fact. Like, if you're spending all day in the terminal, as as you, you might, then eventually, you're, it's, why would you take your hand off the keyboard and put it on the mouse if you could just, if you know that you could just type in, you know, whatever command and it would launch your, your GUI application. So yeah, I think that would be something that I would use even more frequently. But anyway, Packrat is a very simple application. It, it, it really just, it's, it's one of those things that you probably don't even need an, a command for. I feel like I could, I, I can get past that. But on Silverblue, especially, for instance, there's the software center, the GNU, the, the GNOME software application. And it is, as I've said in previous episodes, a really, really nice application. It's just a beautiful thing. It's a little software store, an app store, whatever, and it's all zero dollars and it looks really great and it gives you lots of useful information gives you reviews that, you know, reviews are reviews. Sometimes they're useful, sometimes not so much. They certainly reflect something. I'm not sure what it is. It tells you where it's from. It tells you the size. gives you a screenshot. You know, it, it is a lot of good good information. And and yet Silverblue ships as if though the only Flatpak repository in the world is the Fedora Flatpak repository, which has, you know, I don't know, a handful of applications. Whereas Flathub, the sort of the big universal one, is not, for some reason, included by default. 
And then when you add Flathub to the software, uh, GNOME software, for whatever reason, it does not instantly add that repository. I'm assuming that reason is that it is having to ingest and parse an app stream, like a bunch of data describing a bunch of different applications. So I understand that. I don't understand why it's not more clear to the user what is going on. I believe, and I have said this in my bug report, I believe that the trick is to log out and log back in, or possibly just reboot. Because I I did the flat, I, I added FlatHub to GNOME software, and I did this all, I just clicked on a button that was in Fedora, uh, in, uh, in Firefox, when you go to flathub.org slash setup, I think, or, or something like that, setup slash Fedora, whatever, click a button and it says FlatHub repository reference or something like that. Click that. It, it offers to open it up in Software Center. It opens it up in Software Center. You can click on the install button. It adds the repository to your to your software sources list. So, I mean, it's 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 doing everything right. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's honestly one of the few times on Fedora I've ever had that experience. Like every other time I've ever tried to open anything in the software installer application on Fedora, but probably a lot of other things as well. It's just Fedora happens to be the one that I've had the most experience with this on. It has always failed. There's always something. Either, oh, you don't have permissions to install this for some reason and I can't obtain them from you. Or or just some inexplicable error. And and in this case, it is working exactly as you would want it to, except that once it's added, it just doesn't propagate. You can search for Emacs or GIMP or Glimpse or, or Sync Thing or, or anything that's on Flathub but not on Fedora does not come up. And just for kicks, I even opened a terminal and did a manual Flatpak install org.gnu.emacs or org.gnu.emacs uh, gimp.gimp or whatever I installed. I can't remember if I did gimp or glimpse. And and it works perfectly. Everything's there, but you can go back to GNOME software and it has no knowledge still of FlatHub. I checked to ensure that FlatHub was enabled. Still couldn't couldn't figure it out. So there's a little bit of a, there's some development happening there, uh, uh, ideally. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming. I mean, I certainly I filed the bug, so I believe that and I, I, I have to believe that the developers are aware that that's happening. Now I know they're aware of it, that it's happening, and I'm, I'm assuming they're working on some kind of either fix or, um, well, yeah, let's call it a fix. Because even if it doesn't propagate, like, magically immediately, which may simply not be possible, then at least maybe the user will be alerted, like, hey, you need to log out and log back in, or, or, or we're, we're processing application data, this could take a while, you know, whatever needs to be said will surely be said at some point. So that's a work in progress, and that's fine. And this all ties into a point that I'm going to make later, so hold on to these apparent criticisms. Not apparent criticisms, they're criticisms. Hold on to these bug reports, because it's going to come up in a little bit. So that's the flat pack experience. It's, It's good, and it's also sometimes painful, and that's okay, is what it is. So... The toolbox experience is really interesting too, and the toolbox experience is this namespace controlled C group constrained environment where you enter you, you create a toolbox and all that does if you can see it with toolbox list, it just it, it downloads a little bare minimum image of Fedora, of a Fedora container, into your onto your computer, and then you can enter that toolbox. And by default, if it's the only toolbox available to you, you just toolbox enter, and then you're in the toolbox. And it gives you a nice little visual indication in your prompt, or before your prompt, that that you're in a toolbox now. And if there's more than one, then you can tell it which toolbox to enter. So if, if you've created a toolbox and named it, um, you know, my great Java project, then you can just enter that one, toolbox enter my great Java project. And if you've got a general purpose one that's just Fedora Silverblue 34 with dashes in between, I think is the default one, then you can enter that. Toolbox enter Fedora dash Silverblue dash 34 or whatever it's actually called. So that's um, that's a pretty smooth experience, really. And, and when I say smooth, I mean, it, it takes that one extra step of, well, now you have to, you have to enter that toolbox. So that's not quite as 
quick, I guess, as launching a terminal. But it, it seems to be pretty pretty consistent that once you're in a toolbox, it kind of assumes that that, that, that terminal window is toolboxed. And so if I open up another tab, from what, I, what, from what I've noticed so far, it opens it up in a toolbox. So then you can just get a new instance of a terminal if you want another one. So it's... There, there are ways that it's kind of making it easy to to be in a toolbox and to stay in a toolbox, but you're not forced into the toolbox if you don't want to be in the toolbox in in a certain window or whatever. So that that seems to be working well, and it seems to be working so well. And of course, the advantage of a toolbox then, so it is a little Fedora image that is disposable. You could get rid of it, but it's still looking at your at your system. It's not a virtual machine. It's just a container. So it's just constraining the effects of what you do within that terminal in terms of in terms of the the operation of the, of that little of that name spaced environment. So for instance, you can do a sudo dnf install gcc in that toolbox and then you've got gcc available within that toolbox and that could be forever your gcc toolbox you could use that all the time whenever you need gcc you launch your gcc toolbox you use gcc or if you only need a gcc for like one thing then you can install gcc in a toolbox compile the thing and then delete the toolbox get rid of it it's gone gcc no longer exists on your system you need it again make a new toolbox install gcc again Maybe you don't need GCC. Make a new toolbox. Install G++ instead. Or or make one and install Java, J- Javac, Java C, the Java compiler instead. It, it's up to you. And this feels weird, and it feels unnatural, unless you're, say, um, a Python programmer. In which case, this seems pretty darn natural. Or a, or a cloud architect. Um, this seems really natural. Because what you're doing is you're creating virtual environments, and in that virtual environment, you're putting your the, you're putting all your the tools that you need, and now you have access to them, and they're ephemeral. They can go away at any time, or you can bring them back in at any other time. And I don't know yet the canonical way to sort of automate sort of or define a preset toolbox. I mean, it might just be as simple as putting a bunch of package names in a file and and then when you when you create a toolbox just tell you know point dnf to that file and say install all those file all of those all the packages listed in that file that would be easy enough there might be an even better way to do that but you know kind of like i'm thinking of sort of a a pip what is it pip dash r or something like that where you just point pip at a file and it just it installs all the requirements for that virtual environment and then you're up and running with your your python project so I, I don't know the the correct way to do that within toolbox yet. I haven't exactly looked because I haven't actually repeated toolbox creation often enough to make that something that I that I've looked into. But it is it is nice if different, and it really made me think about sort of the concept of virtual environments and how, on one hand, they're actually really really quite nice, and they they make you wonder or or even question the concept of a directory or a folder. Because, like, what really is a folder? I mean, you and I may or may not know that a folder isn't actually anything. A folder is actually just a a, a bookmark, an inode marker on a hard drive. And there's not really... It's it's a label that gets applied to things. You know, it's not really a thing. There's not, not a physical thing where you put files literally into it. It's just, by convention, we say we're putting files into a folder. But there's not really anything about about that folder. That's why when you look at folders, they they don't take any they they don't take up the size of their contents. They take up like four bytes or something like that, whatever it is. It's not really a thing. So a, f- a folder then really is a construct, and we we invented them because we like to have a good way to organize. A project, for instance, we have five related files, and rather than just having them scattered around on our in our home directory, which directory, whatever, uh, on our drive, we make a new folder and we put the five files in there. The other way around that, obviously, would simply be to come up with a convention where we prefix our file names. So it'd be foo underscore image one dot png foo underscore text file dot 
txt, and so on. But instead, we just created a, a folder. So a folder, in a way, is an environment. It is a it is a place where things that relate to one another go, and that's kind of what a toolbox is, in 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 a way, like you could create a toolbox and declare that that toolbox is a place where things that need to get compiled go, or that's a toolbox where things that need to, the the text the doc the doc book files that I create and then need to um, process go are are managed by that toolbox and so on. So it is kind of a way of building tool chains. Or, or environments, and in a weird way, it makes a whole lot of sense. I don't know if if it's quite as smooth as it's going to get. For instance, if I open up a toolbox and then attempt to do a flat pack run org.gnu.emacs, it will tell me that flat pack is not a command that it understands. So there's still a little bit of a... There, there's kind of this weird incongruity between the host system and this little toolbox that I've created that I, I thought should have a hollow, a false bottom that I could get out to. I mean, certainly I can get out of that toolbox to recognize my kernel, so why shouldn't I be able to get out of it for to, to, to run my flat pack? But then again, maybe it's not important that my flat pack runs within that toolbox, and so it doesn't matter. Either way, if it doesn't matter, then maybe there should be an exception there so that as the user i don't have to care whether my flat pack is like running quote unquote inside that toolbox or outside that toolbox it's just that it's an application on my computer and i'm supposed to be able to run it now i think the flat pack people would probably tell you why would you be launching a flat pack from the terminal you're not supposed to do that you're supposed to do that from your application window and to that i would refer back to my previous episode, or not previous, but the one before that, where I was talking about diverse interests, where people use computers in different ways, most of those ways are valid, and so we kind of need to embrace the idea that that people are going to want many different ways of approaching, uh, of finding a solution to a, a desire, to a requirement. And I think there's an argument there that if I'm on Silverblue and I'm in a toolbox, then great, I have DNF available. And I can I'm, I understand that DNF is only available in that toolbox, that DNF is a toolbox thing and you can't type it into another terminal because it won't work. But Flatpak is kind of, to a user, that, that sits on top of everything, right? That's on my desktop. That's my application. That should be available throughout my system. The toolbox shouldn't be a block to my flat pack, or if it is, then it should be a block to all my files as well, and then you have to kind of wonder what a toolbox is for. So yeah, I think there's a little bit of a, a disjointedness there that we have an opportunity to smooth out. I don't know whether that is on anyone's radar at all, because that's just something that I've noticed recently, but something that I thought about. And you know, I, I kind of thought about new users coming to Fedora, and, and we're at some point, a new user is going to come to Silverblue. And, I mean, I don't know when that point would be. I don't know if anyone would suggest to a new Linux user, oh, definitely go Silverblue. I, I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon. But at some point, I, presumably, if Silverblue hangs around, that will happen. And I just keep thinking of, I wonder if, for instance, a Mac user who, you know, a power Mac, a power user of Mac OS, who'd been maybe getting into open source development or something on that platform, this might not even seem all that weird to that user. Because you have your graphical environment, in this case, Wayland graphic, graphical server and uh, Flatpak for your applications, and everything interacts just as you'd expect. And then you open your terminal, and you dip into this other world of Unix, and you can have, you have commands that you enter and, and applications that you can use from the terminal, and that's a separate system almost, which seems weird and, until you think about how Mac users do experience open source or uh, Unix environment on, on Mac OS. It is a se separate system, really. I mean, they have to install a bunch of additional libraries, uh, possibly an X11 Zorg server, and or like, what is it, X11 Quartz or whatever? I don't know what the status of Wayland is there. And then there's they have to choose their, they have to go find a package manager for themselves because there's not one there, so they either use uh, Mac ports or, or or Homebrew, and and all of their applications sort of run within that environment, and you can kind of launch them if you did the X11 thing, but 
then again, maybe not. So it's there's a X quartz. That's what it's called, just X quartz. So it it is um it 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 isn't it wouldn't strike them probably as weird to experience silver blue. That that to them would probably feel relatively normal, which to me is interesting. And I mean that in a completely neutral way. Like it, it's interesting that there probably is a subset of people who are learning the ropes of open source and development and so on, and their experience is that non-integration is the norm. Now, I don't know that that's something we should shoot for necessarily, because Linux has been spending a long time working at integration, but it is kind of interesting to me that this this may not be that weird to a lot of people, this level of disjointedness might be the norm. Something to think about. There's all kinds of things to get used to with with Silver Blue, and I, I've mentioned some of these things in 377. Uh, and one thing that 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 I think I figured out since then is the user and group um, equation, and that is so I have external drives. I've talked about this before. Most of my home, my home partition, not my literal slash home slash Clatu partition. That literally, that those are on drives. But in all honesty, like the data that I that I care about and that I track and that I back up and such, that is on a thumb drive. So that thumb drive, I, I do not feel comfortable having that thumb drive running on a non-journaled file system, even though. Honestly, between you and me, and this is just between us, a non-journaled drive has never actually screwed me over. Like, I, I don't feel like I've ever had a problem with a non-journaled drive, but I just don't feel comfortable using a non-journaled drive. For better or for worse, right or wrong, I just like the journaled file system. So I've got this thing running, I don't know, ext4 probably right now. And so that means there's a bunch of Linux permissions involved. And that can be painful. I hate to say that, but it can be. I mean, there are ACLs that are supposed to help. There's Unix groups that are supposed to help. And yet getting everything coordinated correctly across systems so that you can smoothly transport your little USB thumb drive between all of your Linux computers, it, there, it can take configuration. And I would say that it is an advanced configuration puzzle. Really, really quite annoying, honestly. But... That's that's what it is. That's how it goes. The the fact that Linux enforces Unix permissions on external drives is probably a very good thing. Um, the fact that we don't have a good journaled permissionless file system could be problematic, maybe. Maybe that's the fix. I, for a very long time, I thought UDF was the fix, but there's no FSCK for UDF, so that's a little bit of a... Uh, that's a little bit of a danger... So there's, well, I shouldn't say that. I think there is an FSCK for UDF, but it is in an abandoned branch of some Solaris-related code base, and it does not compile, I can tell you that, on Linux. And from what I've read, it it needs modification for that to happen, and that's beyond my area of expertise, much less vague knowledge, so that's not going to happen anytime soon for me. So the situation that I find myself in is very frequently that I'm on a system that, well, S Silverblue, for whatever reason, doesn't let you set your own user ID. They set it to a thousand, whether you like it or not. Part of my intricate system to make everything work had been, for quite a while, to assign myself manually a rather sort of a, just like a, a pseudo-random user ID that I then kept consistent across all of my systems. And it was high enough that I felt no one would have it by default, or usually. And and so it, it tended to work. If I was setting up a computer, I would give myself this UID, let's call it 2222. 2222. Yeah, sure, let's call it that. 2222. Um, and I would do that, and it would sort of work, because then my user was always 2222 on any system. It didn't matter what it was, the user was always seen as user number 2222, and ultimately Unix file permissions cares about that UID more than it cares about that string. It could be Clatu, it could be not Clatu. It doesn't matter to, to Unix permissions. If it's 2222, then it's the same user. Problem. My work machines have never let me choose my own UID, so that's 
that's always been an exception. And now silver blue doesn't let me choose my UID, so now that is an exception. Now I have not tried setting my UID manually in silver blue after the initial setup. I just haven't bothered yet. I should try that. I just, at this point, I'm not sure that I want to break it right now. So I'm not going to try it, certainly, by the end of this episode. So we'll say that it doesn't let me do that. So the, the fallback method for ensuring that I have easy, quick, read, write, execute access on my thumb drive when I need it and want it is to create a group and then grant ACL defaults to group on my thumb drive and have that sort of be the consistent method of doing this. So the group is supposed to be users, U-S-E-R-S. Simple, group 100, system group, GID, very standard, pretty common. It's not on everything and, and you don't get assigned it automatically for some weird reason. And certainly it's not assigned as your primary user group. So one of the typical things that I do when on a new system is promote the users group to my my users primary group id and the process for that usually is sudo user mod uh, dash g lowercase g and then in, in my case 100 or i think you could just put users yeah, i guess you could users and then your your username clatu and that promotes that user or that rather that group name that group to your primary default group. Now it doesn't take uh, place instantly. You have to log out and then log back in to sort of reload the environment. Except on Silverblue, you have to reboot. It doesn't tell you that, but through a lot of trial and error, that is what I realized, that in order to actually make the new group, which that's another thing that kind of threw me off too, because there is a command called new group, N-E-W-G-R-P, which loads a new environment with that gr that new group, whatever you tell it, new GRP space users, then then it would load a new environment with that as your primary group. So you, I thought, well, maybe that's how I'm supposed to do it for silver blue. So I kind of went down that path for a while. Ultimately, I realized, no, it's just user mod dash G 100 clat 2, and then reboot, and then you'll you'll your your new session after the reboot has group uh, users as my primary group. Everything's set to users, and everything's fine. But it it took me a long while up to the point of filing a bug. I I'd opened a bug the a bugzilla page. I was I was filling out the form, and as is so often with a bug, and this is why filing bugs is so great so many times. While I was filling out the form. It was like, how reproducible is this? I'm like, 100% of the time. I'm filling stuff out, and then I'm realizing, oh, you know what? I never tried rebooting. I tried logging out. I tried new group. I tried closing the terminal and reopening it. I tried all of these other things. Never tried a reboot. And so then I tried a reboot, and worked like a charm. So no more bug. So filling out those bug forms, really, honestly, like, if you don't do that as a, a way to force yourself to do smarter, quicker, better troubleshooting, you should do that. Honestly, that's that is it is a great trick. Emailing and bug reports; those are two things that I, I I so every time I do it about a problem, every time I do it, I think, why didn't I do this three hours ago? Because it would have solved everything. Because before I commit something to writing, I realize I really should test this one last thing, and then that's sure to fail. So I'll be able to write that down. In good conscience and then of course it doesn't fail it works and the whole thing is a waste but but not a waste because it made me think about things now one of the tricky bits about that though is that there is no users group by default in the silver blue slash Etsy slash group file in fact there's only like three or four groups in there by default which can kind of throw you off a little bit turns out that uh, Etsy group is sort of more of an includes file than the master group file, as far as I can tell. I saw some message at some point during this trial and error process that told me where the the actual one was, and, and I remember this because I grepped the actual one to find out what, what, what the normal setting for users was, because I couldn't remember what group ID it was. So I do remember doing that, and I think I even piped that grep output into slash Etsy slash group, which in the end, that's that's how you do it. You, you can add your own group in Etsy group, as long as you've got pseudo permissions, and then you can use it. You can invoke it. You can you know, add yourself to it and make it your primary group or whatever. So it, that is one of those things where the, the illusion of what you think the Linux file system is 
it gets a little bit thin because you look at this Etsy group thing and you think, how can there only be three groups in this entire system? Well, there aren't. There's just this is the this is the the group D file, as it were. You know, this is the this is the includes file to what's actually being read. It's really time for a coffee, but let me just close out this segment, I guess, with with just talking about how very very cool it is to be able to run a Linux system off of a 15 gigabyte solid state drive and be happy. Like if if I told someone that my hard drive was 15 gigabytes, I think most, you know, normal people out there, non-Linux users, is what I mean by normal. Um, uh, if I told just the, a general person that I was running off of a 15 gig hard drive, they they wouldn't understand how that was possible. They would think that I just didn't know what a gigabyte was. Surely I meant 1500 gigabytes, 15 terabytes maybe. It's a bit on the big side, but yeah, maybe that's the kind of person I am. No, it's 15 gigabytes. That's the that's the drive, and I have applications installed, even flat packs, no less. I got a toolbox, and I'm I'm perfectly happy doing like normal computer things on this on this crazy system. And it's not it's not an attribute of Silverblue that it's that it can fit onto a 15 gigabyte gigabyte hard drive. I mean that's that's got nothing to do with Silverblue. That's just a general Linux commentary is how cool is it that that's that that's perfectly fine that I don't that 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 I didn't even hesitate to put the thing on a 15 gig hard drive and that it's working quite well. Now, I'll, I mean honestly, I don't I don't know how long I would get by on just 15 gigs. I think eventually I would feel like, well, that's not enough. And certainly I have this thumb drive which is like 64 gigs. So, it isn't like my data, you know, it is still just acting as kind of that root partition essentially. But I still think that's cool. Like that that in itself is a, it's an amazing computing experience. And I think Silverblue just like I just like in episode 377, it is just different enough to pose interesting problems or interesting learning opportunities really to someone who knows Linux. And for whatever reason, it is really really intriguing to me. Um, I just I it's I'm sure that it's partly that container component because I'm still not sure where containers fit into the bigger picture of computing history, and I'm I'm very eager to continue to learn where we're going with that. And I certainly do like containers more than I ever liked virtual machines. I mean, looking back at virtual machines, I don't think I've done really maybe I've maybe I've done an episode on virtual machines in the history of this show, but not it's it's not a common interest of mine, and and it really hasn't been. I mean, it's been a nice convenience, but I'm just saying in terms of sort of being being inspiring technology, virtual machines was never that. Containers are just crazy enough that they seem like they could be really useful, and apparently they are. So Silverblue is really, really an interesting experiment. It continues to be an ex- interesting experiment, and I think that the usability of it continues to astound me, because every time I install it, I think, this is not going to last long. I, I just, I, I can't see myself continuing down this path for very long. But I, I've, I've come back to it now once, and I've enjoyed my time in it both times, and I'm continuing to enjoy my time in it. I am not recording this episode in Silver Blue because, again, it is a 15-gig hard drive, and I thought, well, it would be kind of silly to record the whole show and then export the flack and then get that flack out to a drive and then load it onto Slackware because that's how I post my uh, podcasts is with Podwrite and that's just on my Slackware system and so it just didn't make sense. So by no no fault of its own, I'm not using it for like everything that I do, but I'm enjoying uh, a whole you know entire work days I'll, I'll spend in Silver Blue, and um, yeah, it's just really really interesting. It's an interesting model, and I think that's I guess that's what it is is that it is it's taking normal computing activity, but it's it's giving it a a, a very unique different way of doing it, you know, like it is just different enough to think, well, maybe there's something here. I mean, and maybe there's not, maybe, maybe this crazy idea of toolboxes that don't quite integrate with the rest of your system. Maybe this is all really, really stupid. And we're going to look back and think, well, that was, that was an awkward time for us. Um, but then again, I'm just kind of curious to see where it continues to go. Because this, there could be, there could be, we could be on to something here. So anyway, let's go get coffee, and then we'll come back. And I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, remapping the control key, uh, GNOME 3.4, and um, why open source is ugly. (laughs) 
been acquired on my part, hopefully on yours as well. I want to talk a little bit about GNOME 3.4. If you know anything about GNOME 3.4, I didn't uh, before before installing Silverblue. I mean, I'd heard like one or two comments about how long it took to get from one end of the screen to the other or something like that. But GNOME 3.4 really takes a... It takes the, the, the setup that GNOME 3 has had since since its inception and turns it a little bit on its head. And you might be thinking, how can you turn GNOME 3 on its head? Because so many thought that GNOME 3 was already turned on its head. Well, we're turning it on its head again. For instance, right now in GNOME 3, well, in 3.3, or 3.x, under 4, um, the the virtual desktops are vertical. They're vertical stacked. And so you, you do, like, a super key page up or page down to kind of move between virtual desktops, and they sit on the right-hand side, lengthwise, uh, yeah, vertical side of your of your screen. Uh, and then the application dock is on the vertical edge of the left side of your screen. But in GNOME 3.4, vertical, uh, the virtual desktops are suddenly horizontal for seemingly no reason. Like, I don't know why, frankly, I don't know why it wasn't always horizontal. I feel like that's that's what most people were used to anyway, so it was weird that they went vertical, but now they've gone horizontal all of a sudden. So instead of going up and down your screen, you go left and right. So it's still the super page up and page down, so I, I don't really, I guess, notice technically the difference, but it is still different. And the interface is a little bit different as well, because now... Instead of dragging windows from one desktop to another on the right side of your screen, you're doing it at the top of your screen where your desktops are kind of laid out. Interesting change. Another thing that they changed is the sort of everything. Uh, for instance, you can't. That I don't. I haven't been able to find a dark mode yet, so I, I I I prefer dark windows, dark window decoration, inverted everything. That's what I like. Can't find it on GNOME 3.4. It may exist. I can't find it. I can find no sign of theming capabilities in 3.4. Could be that I just haven't stumbled across the right keyword in the software flat pack center or something. I'm not sure. Not finding it. Another thing I can't find is GNOME tweaks at all for 3.4. So you know how a lot of people would 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 add the minimize button to their their toolbar on GNOME. Apparently that does not exist uh, now for 3.4 yet. I should say. For 3.4, so that that's a big change, and there was a lot in tweaks, so it's a big gap in in what's not available. But the thing that I'm really feeling, or that I was feeling before I f- solved it, is the caps lock remapping function. Now, caps lock remapping for me is an essential of modern computing. I hate the caps lock key. I wish we would get rid of it. It needs to be a control key. That's just how I feel. Other people like it to be an escape key, I guess, for Vim. I guess I'm more control-focused because of Emacs and that kind of application. But, I mean, I'm even just used to that for copy and pasting in, in other applications. So it's just, that's the control key for me. And uh, apparently GNOME doesn't feel like that's a, a thing that people would want to do or something, because it's just not there. It's, it's not there, and GNOME Tweaks doesn't apparently exist. So you can't remap it, in other words. And boy, is that a weird omission. And I'm assuming there's a reason for that omission. I mean, I'm assuming something in, on the back end changed to where it wasn't just an easy copy-paste, like, let's keep that feature. So I'm assuming that GNOME Tweak or some such tool is in development to bring back all of these functions. It, it just feels weird to lose it between a 3.3 and a 3.4 release. That just doesn't... I don't know. It feels weird. Whatever, I'm, I'm assuming that they know their software better than I do, uh, and so I'm assuming there's a reason for all of this. And certainly there is a way to do it, which is important to know. I'm going to randomly list it here, not that anyone's ever going to find it here, but just in case you need it, remember that you heard it from me, and then you can search the internet for posts by me about this, because um, I've responded to a few bugs about it with this tip. So, deconf. That's D as in delta, conf, deconf, space, right, W-R-I-T-E, space, slash org, slash gnome, slash desktop, slash input, dash sources, slash XKB, dash options, space, double quote, square bracket, single quote, caps, colon, 
CTRL, like control, CTRL underscore modifier, close single quote, close square bracket, close double quote, hit return. And that does it. That writes a property out to your, to, to the settings database that GNOME uses, and it tells it to assign the caps key to a control, or to assign control modifier to the, your caps key. Works instantly. You don't have to reboot, you don't have to log out, you don't have to do anything strange. You just type that into your terminal, even in silver blue, and it reassigns the caps lock to a control key forever. Now there may be something similar to that caps colon escape or escape modifier. I don't know. I don't know the magic incantation for that one, but if you're looking to make it a control key, then that's the way that you can do that, and it works. And this kind of leads me to the the thing that I really wanted to talk about, which is the, I guess let's call it the ugly side, or the non-pretty side of open source, which, I mean, there's a lot, there's that kind of sentiment is all over the place, and I don't mean it the way that a lot of people mean it. A lot of times people say, oh, open source is ugly, and they mean it's, it's, aesthetically ugly, like, oh, I don't like the design choice here. Now, first of all, let me put that to rest. Gnome 3.4 is amazingly gorgeous. I mean, it really is. It truly is a work of art. You look at this thing and you say, that's a modern computer. And in fact, I have irrefutable proof that that's a fact because I was using Gnome 3.4 and someone came into the room and saw the screen and said, what is that? And I said, oh, this is this is Fedora. This is their new desktop. And I thought how weird it is that someone would just notice the desktop and, 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 and really be impressed by it. So to me, that's, that's, it's now completely confirmed. Gnome 3.4 is beautiful. But what I really mean by ugly is, well, you know, and the other meaning of ugly is that the community could be ugly. People could be hypercritical as I have just been, right? I've been nitpicking at silver blue and gnome and and all of the things that are are wrong and and you can do that in an ugly way you can say really mean things and blame people and not understand that something is in development or something was a choice that someone made and it just wouldn't have been the choice that you made but that doesn't mean it's the wrong choice it just means it's a choice so what i really mean is by ugly that in open source especially rapid open source like Fedora, but I think it applies to all open source. Development is done in the open, and for that reason we very frequently see things that are not quite done. And that's one of the fears and cliches against open source. Well, you don't want to use open source because, you know, you, just, you never know when it's really ready. And and that's a fair critique. So, some, some projects don't make it av- uh, abundantly clear that, hey, this is not considered stable, this is something that we're still working on. Other projects are a little bit too conservative. They say, this is never stable. This is always under development. You'll, you'll, we don't care when you choose to use our software, but whenever you do choose to use it, it will be the wrong time because it's still under development. But just taking sort of the average, and we're saying in open source, we as users, as frequent users of open source, we oftentimes get to see, or have to see, kind of the awkward stages of open source. And I think, I do think that with Fedora, this is more common than with something else. For instance, my CentOS box, my CentOS stream laptop, is, is quite nice. And it's, it's complete, you know, it's sort of complete. It is everything that I need it to be. But my Fedora Silverblue box is a little bit ugly. It's got some problems. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's, you know, it's, it's quote unquote ugly. It, it has little, it, it's got awkward things that aren't quite ready yet. I couldn't remount my control key for a long time, and I couldn't figure out how to do it, and it was really frustrating. I got there in the end, but that's the kind of thing that you just wouldn't expect to see on something that was ready. Um, there's a Flatpak application called Howl. It is a text editor written in Lua and MoonScript, I think. And it's, it's a really cool little project, and it, it feels a little bit like Emacs, because to invoke functions, you hit Alt-X, and you can type in a function... So it it's really interesting, and I, I kind of like it. And I've put it on, I've I've installed it over a flat pack on on Silverblue, and the fonts are horrendous. And I don't notice fonts ever, but I mean these are rendered incorrectly. It's very clear that there's something wrong, 
with the way that, that the fonts are being rendered. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a flat pack issue or a silver blue issue. Just not sure. Don't know. It could be a... Yeah, it could be anything. So the point is, we see these things, and and that's part of that's part of the nature of open source. You you get the good, and you get the awkward, or if we're being a little bit harsher, you get the ugly. Sometimes it just you you get the parts that you don't want to really see. You you'd rather just see the good stuff. Now part of that is is our own. It's our job to sort of moderate and and govern ourselves. Like, if you don't want to see the ugly parts of open source, I do believe that it's your responsibility to not expose yourself to the ugly parts of open source. In other words, don't go into Fedora thinking, I'm only going to get the best of open source. Because you're not. They are famously, they famously want to be the first to a new feature, which means they're going to, something's going to break. You're going to see something ugly that's not ready yet. But they needed to test it, and so they put it in the latest distribution. And that's kind of problematic if you really are into the RPM-based distros, because up until CentOS Stream, I don't believe there was really a middle ground. It was either the newest, latest, best thing in Fedora, or really, really old stuff and a limited selection at that in RHEL. Now, CentOS Stream is supposed to bridge that gap, so I'm hoping for the best. But we, we have to kind of self-govern and make sure that we're we're only using the parts of open source that we're comfortable with. And and yeah, sometimes that means you're going to be a couple of uh, versions behind your OS or your favorite application, like Audacity. I haven't updated Audacity in ages. I'm sure there's been a new version, but I'm not going to update to that because I use Audacity a lot. So I'll just stick with what I know. I, I prefer what I've got. It's 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 working. It is beautiful. It, it works fine. It's everything I need. I'm sure a future version is going to be great as well. But I don't want to see it when it's awkward. I want to get there when it's when it's tried and true and tested and ready to go. And I think we have to take that on for ourselves as well as for the people that we're 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 sort of guiding through open source. And for many of us, that's that's a lot of people. You know, I mean, you tend to if you're the open source person in your neighborhood or at your workplace or in your house or whatever then a lot of times your job is to is to is to um curate the open source that people get exposed to and if you're showing them the ugly stuff that development process the the part where you're kind of expected to file a bug when you find a bug cuz you're gonna find a bug well that's not that's not necessarily putting the best open source in front of the audience and and I'm not saying that um that we have to hide bugs from people because bugs are everywhere they're in all software but i am saying that that they are a lot easier to find in open source if you're not following the stable branch or the the production branch or whatever they're calling it and so if you don't want to be exposed to the development process you want to avoid the development process on your production machines that's an important thing that I, I think, in a way, Silverblue kind of brought home to me. And it wasn't just Silverblue. It, it was really a, it was a comparison of Silverblue and CentOS Stream. Because just sort of by chance, but probably not by chance, I decided to convert my laptop over to CentOS Stream. Because I thought, well, this is an interesting development. I should check it out. And at the same time, I found a purpose for that 15 gig solid state hard drive and put Silverblue on it. And so now I've I've got these two sort of very different distributions that ultimately are derived from the same source. You know, Fedora goes into CentOS, which goes into RHEL. It's a it's a it's a direct path now. So I'm using diff- different iterations of literally the same technology, and I'm seeing it at different at the different stages. And one, CentOS Stream, it's great. It's super nice. Um, I mean, I've only been using it for a week, so I haven't experienced uh, sort of the update cycle and that sort of thing. But, I mean, so far, it, it, it seems like it is exactly what I would expect out of RHEL, uh, except more of it, more flexibility. And Fedora, of course, is just as crazy as I would have expected from Fedora, especially Fedora Silverblue at that, the, this experimental branch of, of Fedora. So... Knowing what you're you're in for is important, and kind of being okay with your own tolerance levels. I've said it many times before. I run Slackware on my main workstation because it's Slackware. It is slow. It doesn't. It's not slow performance-wise. It's slow to update, to change, and I like that because that way, for five years, 
I get to just have one install that I don't have to worry about or change or configure. It's just done. It is my production machine. Everything works the same way it worked the day before. And I love it. It's fantastic. And it almost forces me sometimes to stay conservative in my application choices. Yes, I could go out and try the latest, greatest version of... Q-Tractor, of Ardour, but in fact, the latest version isn't compiled for my Slackware. Now, I could, I, I subscribe to Ardour, um, I pay for Ardour, so I could, I could download the source code and compile it against my system, and it would probably work, haven't actually done it, haven't tried, but I imagine that would be fine, but as compiled, it, it out, it, surpasses what is available on my Slackware system in terms of library versions. So I don't have the latest version. I don't have 6.5 or whatever it's up to right now. I have 6.0, or maybe it's 6.5 and it's somewhere else. Either way, I, I can be a part of a process or I can wait for it to be in a state where I'm ready for it or it's ready for me. Knowing that process is part of the job of any open source user, uh, or maybe it's not part of the job, but it's it's definitely something that we can be familiar with. We can feel pr- proud about being familiar with that, and, and we can use the knowledge that we have to help other people understand that process, or to or to help them avoid par- being part of a process that maybe they're not interested in being, or or. Maybe they are, and we could guide them towards that. It's something that you don't really think about all that often, and and in a way you don't hear a whole lot about it anymore. And so if you are going to be a part of that process, I do encourage you, well, to keep in mind that it is, that it's in development, when something is in development, that means something, that it's, it is in development, it is, it is still in progress. And if there's something that's in progress and you find could be better, then open up that bug tracker and and file a bug. I used to hear encouragement to do that. I feel a lot more on open source focused podcasts and and I don't hear it as often now, but it's a great way to be a part of the open source process without a whole lot of investment. It it takes some time, it takes some concentration, it takes you know for a very good bug. It takes a, it takes a little bit of testing. If that's something that you've got the time and and bandwidth for, then then go for it. Be be part of the process endure some of the um, the quirks and help fix some of the problems or make useful suggestions as to how it could be better politely kindly understand that your suggestions won't always be taken uh, other people have other ideas of how something is supposed to work sometimes that's not a bug it's a feature that feels like a bug to you but that bug report that it, it is really helpful it's good feedback so give that a go and if you haven't done that before get Give it a try. Sign up for a, a bug tracker, and um, and see if you can figure out how to how to report an error or to make a suggestion. And if you don't, that's fine too. Uh, but help other people understand how open source works uh, through your knowledge. That's uh, I think everything I have to say about everything. So thanks for listening. If you're interested, if if Silver Blue intrigues you, give it a shot. I encourage you to try it. It really is quite an experience. And uh, CentOS Stream is looking good too, so give that a shot if you're interested in a good RPM-based distro that's somewhere between Silver Blue and Rel. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.
hocus-pocus, mumbo-jumbo, black magic.